Psalm 73 starts uh, the third book of the Psalms. This Psalm is pretty special to me as I uh, remember it because when we built Calvary Chapel Corvallis, um, we had Chuck Smith come up and dedicate it. And, um, and this is what he taught out of. And so it's just pretty vivid in my mind, uh, the subject and, uh, you know, hearing him, you know, he passed away about three years ago and to just kind of remember some of the, some of the dedication of, you know, what the house of the Lord is to be, what the church is to be. And as we get to verses 16 and 17, which are really a highlight of the chapter, um, you can see why he picked this as a, as a church dedication <clears throat> passage. So Psalm 73, uh, before we get into the word of God, let's go to the God of the word, huh? Lord, here we are uh, just having some, some wonderful visitors here on this Memorial Day weekend and new people to the community and much of our church uh, gone away, fellowshipping right now with Jeremy preaching and, and, uh, and Lord, just hearing this chapter again, just know that it's for us. It's just a good reminder to be refocused as we enter into your presence and come into the church, Lord, the, the, um, at least the building portion, Lord, as we focus ourselves to, uh, to worship you and fix our eyes upon you. You do great things as we do that. And of course, as we're with the church, the redeemed people around us, uh, even today, you've got great things for us and fixing our perspective aright. We just pray that you would do that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've titled Psalm 73, The Fate of the Wicked and the Faith of the Righteous. The Fate of the Wicked and the Faith of the Righteous. It starts out by telling us this is a psalm of Asaph, who was a Levite musician appointed by David to serve in the tabernacle. Whenever I read of Asaph, I think of Aesop's fables. I don't know if you're familiar with like the tortoise and the hare, you know, uh, but that's a totally different guy. Uh, it's actually spelled different and everything, but you know, you got this, this Oregon boy's mind just goes right to a good cartoon that he saw once about a rabbit and the turtle racing. So, um, but this Psalm is so, so important because it deals with a problem that goes way beyond the date it was written. It's very relevant to us here today in 2017, Prineville, Oregon, man, it struck a chord with me as I was studying it. Just from events that I went through in the last couple days, it's relevant because it deals with the problem of wicked people flourishing and righteous people languishing. Rip, uh, rich people, wicked people rather, uh, ripid, wicked Rich, rich has nothing to do with it. Wicked people flourishing and just seeming to be prosperous where the righteous people and those who call Yahweh their God, who call Jesus Christ their God, it seems like they're just kind of cast by the wayside. And here in Psalm 73, we see a man who's almost stumbled in his faith because he sees the success of the wicked man. He has what one guy called a perplexing mental conflict. He almost goes mental as he tries to figure out why this is so. He begins to envy the prosperity of the wicked, which even for us is a common temptation. It's been said that this temptation has tried the graces of many of the saints, and I'm sure glad we're all above that today, right? Um, probably not as all, especially as we get into the specifics of it all. The overview of this psalm is that it's a moving autobiographical reflection on the suffering of the righteous while the wicked prosper. It's an autobiography. This guy's writing it about himself. This is something he went through. Johnny and I were driving to John Day last week, and we just had such a great time of fellowship as we went, and, and uh, that's another just announcement is we're going to be, uh, along with Burns Calvary Chapel, uh, we're kind of taking over the ministry in John Day, 
And uh, we're having a teaching rotation uh, to preach and teach there and just to care for that body as the Lord raises up a new pastor. This is Pastor Ira's last Sunday there. And uh, so be praying with that and your involvement in that. But, but, you know, as Johnny and I were driving there, Johnny was just talking about how, you know, just as a guy that's sitting out in the audience and I hear the preaching and teaching going on, <clears throat> when a pastor gets very real about his life and even just specifics, man, it just feels like he is just connected with the listeners. And we can just relate that that's just a man up there behind the pulpit, just like I'm a man. And we're just endeavoring to be filled with the Spirit and just come to the foot of the cross and just be changed and moved and empowered. And, and he just was just the, the motive, the, the emphasis from Johnny was, you know, just to hear just real life stuff from the guy who's teaching. It's just powerful. And, and that's what we're going through here. The, the psalmist, the preacher, he's going to talk about real stuff that you're like, no psalmist should ever be thinking that, let alone confessing it. Uh, you know, no guy that's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in scripturating scripture should have thoughts like that. And it just is very comforting because this is just a homeboy like me and like you and homegirls. Sorry, I got the look. There's more than just the man here. Okay, well, sorry. And so let's look at this experience from this man, Asaph. Verses 1 through 3 show us he's had some experience, and this is leading to some certain beliefs here. And first of all, it's a good one. Truly God is good to Israel, <clears throat> to such as are pure in heart. It's interesting because maybe you caught it already, this is kind of an abrupt start to a psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel. The, when I first read it, you know, I'm, uh, I'm on social media, Facebook and Twitter. I don't really use Twitter much. It's way, you know, you can only like have like 100 words or something. And it's like, you know me, I need like 1,000. But, uh, but I follow Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister of Israel. And that guy is a stallion. I mean, I just love that guy. Rumor is that he's a Christian and he actually has a home fellowship in his house. But, but anyways, you know, as you listen to him speak, there's just power as he speaks. And as you read his tweets, I mean, they are, they are at night and day different from our wonderful leader who we all pray for in, in his tweets. But, but it, they're very just powerful and bold and true. And, and, you know, I could see him writing something like this, just Truly, you know, he's got this deep, awesome, manly voice. You know, truly, God is good to Israel. Truly, God is good to Israel. While this author is going through some major mental conflict, it's almost like he's reflected on it and he just comes back to reality finally. And he starts out some conflict by just saying, I'm about to vent here and share what's been on my heart, but I just got to start off with some truth. Truly God is good to Israel. The Amplified Bible says, truly God is only good to Israel. And that might be just a good word for you today. The trials that you're going through in your life, the conflict that you're, maybe you're having supreme mental conflict today. And just to come to a point where you focus and say, truly God is only good. Truly God is only good. God is good to his people. Job, when he writes in the midst of much temptation and trouble, he fixes his, fo his focus on the omniscience of God. Truly things are not hidden from the Almighty. That's Job's attribute he's focusing on. Jeremiah the prophet focuses on the justice of God as he says, Righteous are you, God, when I plead with you. So good when we're going through trials to focus on the attributes of God. Habakkuk's principle is the holiness of God. You are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, Habakkuk says. And here the psalmist says, God is good. Truly, God is only good to Israel. These are truths that cannot be shaken, that we need to resolve to live and to die for. And you can put a note there in your, in your notes or on the side of your Bible that good thoughts of God will fortify us 
when Satan's many temptations come our way, thinking good thoughts of God. Here's the qualifier, though, of the recipients of God's goodness. Purity of heart. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure of heart. And so what the psalmist is saying is, to true Israel, to true Israel, God is truly good. And the New Testament tells us that the true Israel goes beyond national heritage. It goes beyond blood. Don't get me wrong. God's not done with Israel. Romans tells us one day all Israel will be saved. We look for that day. We support Israel. We pray for the peace of Israel. We follow old Benny on Twitter, you know, and we pray for that nation. And we even visit and learn of Israel and see those wonderful sights. Uh, But that would be missing the mark if it ended there. The New Testament tells us that the true Israel are those that are children of Abraham by faith. And they're the ones that are not merely circumcised in the outward circumcision made with hands, but by faith they've entered into the circumcision of the heart where the flesh and the foreskin of the heart has been cut away by the Spirit of God when one places their faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins and new life abundantly, to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be born again, to have the flesh trimmed away. That is to be true Israel. That is to be those who are pure in heart. That is to be those to whom God is truly only good. And this happens not by works of righteousness that we have done, Titus tells us in chapter 3, but according to his mercy this happens, that we are created to be holy. He saves us through the washing and regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so when the psalmist writes of being pure in heart, he's talking about those who one day, he looks future to the new covenant, their hearts are going to be washed and clean and scrubbed by the renewing and, here's the word for you, regeneration or to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And Titus goes on to say, or rather Paul to Titus, this is the Spirit he's poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In another psalm, Psalm 24, 3, a question is asked, and it's not the only time in Psalms that this question is asked, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? In other words, modern day, we might ask the question, who goes to heaven? Who goes to heaven? Who ascends to the hill of the Lord? Who goes into his holy place? And the psalm goes on to say, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So clean hands, pure heart, no idolatry in their heart, not swearing deceitfully. And then that psalmist goes on in Psalm 24 to say, listen to this, this is Jacob, or this is Israel, if you will. The generation of those who seek him, who seek his face. So truly God is only good to Israel, to those who have a pure heart, to those who have clean hands, pure heart, not lifting their souls to an idol, not swearing deceitfully. That is Jacob. Those who've had the washing and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty good, right? That's a pretty good first verse of the psalm. Kind of could just close the Bible and be done with it. I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend, right? Probably wouldn't get a lot of haters of that. But then you have this crazy change of of scene, like a movie that starts out with shiny days and, you know, a family getting ready and, you know, they're on their way out to school and to work and then just something drastic happens. Um, You know, I'm thinking like Tom Cruise in War of the Worlds or something, you know, it's all good. He's got his Yankees baseball cap or whatever it was on and he's taking the kids to school and what could go wrong? You know, the aliens come and everything goes wrong. That's essentially the psalm. It's like, yeah, God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. But, verse 2 says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly 
slipped. Yet my feet, they were almost gone. The tempter had come and it really tripped me up. He tripped me up with something. So much so that he's going to say, I almost wanted to quit my religion and just give up all expectations of being benefited by it. Because I was envious of the foolish, he's going to say. And Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary to take note. He actually, I like it when he does this. This is, you know, what is it? It's 2017, so this is about 500 years ago that, Hen- that Matthew Henry said, Note one, the faith even of strong believers may sometimes be sorely shaken and ready to fail them. There are storms that will try the firmest anchors. These are going to come to you. These are going to come to me. I remember Kevin telling me that through studies and families and having a pastor in his family, that even pastors go through times where they don't even know if they believe in God anymore. I've never been there. I don't think I'll ever get there. But even the firmest anchors go through such trials that they come to a place like this where my steps had nearly slipped. Why? Verse 3, For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's the issue. We think that God, in kind of a blanket statement, always only blesses materially the righteous. And that he will, blanket statement, always only make an example of judgment against the wicked. That's kind of like our innocent preschool mind, you know, like good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. The righteous should flourish and the wicked should just always be judged by God always and never have anything good happen to him. And so that is, that is the, the mind of the psalmist. And so he's tripped up because this is not the case that I'm observing right now. We look around and we see the power brokers. And we see the rich and the famous and the old money and the new money and the ungodliness and the rebellion against God. And we wonder how come it's not the other way around? It can create real confusion and it can stumble us. That's something that was going on here. It might be a little bit tough for us as Americans because we're the richest nation in the world and we're like the richest people of the richest nation that's ever existed. And so we have a lot, you know, it's like many of us can say, I almost lack nothing. Plenty of food in the fridge, in the pantry, my power's on, you know, I got that Tempur-Pedic bed I sleep on every night, so on and so forth, that, that sometimes this may be hard to relate, and yet I bet if you dig down, you can think of instances, even this week, that this was kind of a thought in your mind. And the writer lets us in on a little secret in verse 3. He was envious. He was jealous. Appreciate his transparency here. I was jealous of the success of the wicked. And you know, maybe that's us. I'm, I'm jealous when I see what the wicked are paid. They are rolling in the dough. What they take home and what I take home from a job where righteousness isn't necessarily appreciated is night and day different. And so the psalmist says, you know, I'd like a little bit more of that. I'd like a house like that. I'd like a car like that. I'd like a few more followers on Twitter like that. And I just started cracking up this week because my kids and I just recently watched Nacho Libre together. You may or may not agree with that moral decision, but... Before I moved here, it was the Film and Faith Night video of the week. So, hey, blame it on the previous pastor. No, I'm kidding. 
But there's this scene where Nacho has been, you know, he works at a monastery and he's like this monk that, you know, he's the cook of this orphanage. And he's always upset because we never have enough money for fresh ingredients, you know. And so he just serves this slop to these kids and everyone hates it. The high priest looks at him as he slops in his bowl and says, I have had diarrhea since Easter's, you know. And, and, you know, it's just a horrible, you know, these poor kids, no one's happy. They've all got this face like this, you know. And so Nacho goes out and he, he begins this dream of ultimate wrestling, you know. That's been his dream since the beginning. And, and he does it secretly because if the monks found out he's been doing this, he'll be kicked out of the monastery. And there's this part where this young boy, I think Sancho or something, you know, who, who loaned Nacho the stretchy pants, you know, uh, Sancho thinks he's on to something, like Nacho's doing something. And, and so Sancho is, is wrestling in the courtyard with these other kids. And, and the head nun, Incarnacion, says, nay, wrestling's the devil. Don't be doing this. Wrestling is wrong. And, and Nacho walks in with all the fresh ingredients he has in his arms from, you know, his, his wrestling money that he just bought. And he's like, hey, kids, wrestling is bad. And the kid who thinks he's on to him is like, really? Really wrestling is bad? And this is hilarious because there's this Psalm 73 moment that comes out of, of Nacho's um, mouth, if you'll bear with my accent. He says, listen, I know that the wrestlers get all of the fancy ladies, the clothes, the free creams and lotions, but my life is good, real good. I get to wake up every morning, 5 a.m., and make some soup. It's the best. I love it. I get to lay in bed by myself all of my life. It's fantastic. Look, go away. Read some books. You know, it's just hilarious. You've got this monk that's like his whole life is cooking food for the orphans, you know. And, you know, he's challenged on it. And he's seen the life of the professional wrestlers and all the free creams and lotions, you know. It's the best, you know. And, and, you know, he just, he's like, how come they get that and here I am stuck here doing this? I hate to break it to you, but I was a youth pastor for eight years and sometimes that never goes away. And that was eight years ago. You see people who are living for today. And you know them. They're not generous with their resources. They heap upon themselves luxury items and every toy that you could ever possibly want. And one begins to think, perhaps if I was not giving away all of my time, giving away all of my resources, I could be living like that. This has been going on in my heart lately. And I was up at the campsite driving back on Friday, Memorial Day weekend, and I see every type of amazing camper and toy that you could ever want driving past me up to the mountains. And I'm driving back so I can get to church on Sunday. You know? <laughs> I do not have a quad or anything in my back of my truck. I don't have the, you know, the stellar camp trailer. Not that those things aren't bad in and of themselves. But the issue that's being dealt with here is you know, being rich isn't bad. The issue is the people that make up 90 to 95% of who are camping in the woods this week, they are living for self all year long, every year. Their entire life is marked by that. And they just seem to have it all. Where's my piece of the pie? Where's your piece of the pie? You might be wondering. Now, negative emotions can creep up but they must be dealt with. The psalmer here was so miserable. He gets, we barely even touched it yet, but I'm just going to tell you, he's so miserable, okay? He's engaging, he's going to begin engaging in self-pity, and he's going to go so far to question God's justice. He gets filled with resentment, and he could have easily just given up and joined the very wicked men that he was envious. But he didn't. Because God is faithful and he upholds his saints. Verses 4 through 12 move on to tell us how it seems the, uh, the wicked 
are prosperous. Look at verse 4. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. The psalmer studies them. He says they die strong. The language of pangs can also be there are no bonds in their death. In other words, they're not the ones that are getting persecuted. You know, they don't die just in the cuffs. And we know that, man, the number of Christians that are persecuted today for faith. You're just like, how come they're the ones dying like that? Shouldn't it be the other way around? The wicked seem to be dying strong. And the culture that he's observing in the psalm is these guys are not dying of starvation or of diseases that come from lack of proper nourishment or good health care. There's no pangs in their death. It seems that their strength is firm even to death. Now, I was reminded as I studied this of a former pastor's wife at Calvary Corvallis. Her name was Trish Stokes. And uh, she was a trauma nurse for many years. And I just remember sitting in her kitchen and she told me stories of time after time after time where she was there at men and women's deathbed. And she says that, you know what? The ones that don't have Christ die in agony and torment. They're terrified. They don't want to go. And she even tells the stories of multiple times where people have been called, what do they call it? Call it, you know, or they're dead and they give them time of death. And they come back to life and they say, I need to talk with a chaplain right now. I need to talk to some family members. I've got to basically confess and repent of sin that's been going on in my life. Just crazy things where it may seem that people are going out strong. My, my neighbor buddy that I mention all the time that I just long to just have a great deep conversation about the gospel with. You know, I'm just thinking today as I'm studying like, brother, you don't have, you don't have 10 years. <laughs> you know, you don't have probably five years. And, and you just act like it's all good. It seems like there's no pangs in, in the end of your life. You're living it up. But the, the, the hour will come, the minute will come when your heart beats its last. And then what? What's your hope and what's your confidence in? Henry said, we cannot judge of men's state on the other side. Death either by the manner of their death or the frame of their spirits in dying. Men may die like lambs and yet have their place with the goats. Moving on in the text. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. They've got it easy. Verse 6, therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They are proud, insolently proud, Violence is their clothing. They get away with violence. Nobody stops them. Our minds can often go to drug lords and dictators who use violence to gain their wealth and then hold on to their wealth and power. Verse 7, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than a heart could wish. Their eyes bulge with abundance. This is an interesting phrase. Their eyes stand out with fatness. David's translation is, their eyes glisten more than milk. Namely, their eyes shine because of their fat prosperity. The NEB says, their eyes <clears throat> gleam through folds of fat. And the NIV says, their eyes bulge with fat. So if you go back to Asaph's days, to get heavy enough that your eyes were bulging was a luxury. This was actually the sign of wealth. Nowadays, we spend tons of money on trying to get skinny. Back then, it was the money that, that allowed you to be uh, overweight. We think of it as a curse to them. It was like, yeah, we're living it. It was the mark of prosperity. And so it seemed to Asaph that the wicked didn't struggle in life. They have more than the heart could wish. I don't know how you guys are, but you know, Christmas time comes around or birthday time. And my mom, who's just 
so caring and still a mother. You know, she, that email comes out, you know, what do you guys want for Christmas, you know? And it's just like, ah, just, I'm lacking nothing. And yet I still come up with like a thousand things, but still, you know. Uh, you know, and so there's this, <clears throat> there's this truth to, you know, mom, really, I have more than my heart could ever want. I have more than my heart could ever want. Verse 8 says, they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Their tongues speak of their own importance and the whole earth is just full of their self-importance. We see this on a rapidly regular basis with social media and those rich, wicked people who are just famous in our nation and they just tell you every thought that they have. And uh, this is almost prophetic of that. And yet we would still expect to maybe show some sort of realization of their blessing and maybe a smidgen of gratitude and maybe a dash of humility, something that goes beyond hashtag blessed, you know, like no, some real thankfulness. Instead, the psalmist says they go on brandishing pride as if it were a chain around their neck. They don't hesitate to speak loftily, kind of think almost like a P. Diddy type guy, you know. Instead of thanking God for tranquility and affluence, they set their mouth against the heaven, verse 9 says. Verse 10, therefore his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. They've got an entourage. In verse 11, and they say, how does God know? And is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. In other words, they're practical atheists. Very atheistical and profane. And then we have Asaph move towards personal reflection. Verses 13 through 17 Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. This is where the psalmist reaches his lowest points. This is the point where the strong temptation to cast off his faith. But really it shows us what true religion really is. And you know, I've gone to that point where I hated the word religion and I, I threw out the whole, you know, I'm not religious, I just have a relationship with Jesus, you know. But as you begin to study the Puritan preachers, to them, relationship with Jesus was religion. And of course, we in our culture, most of the times, we understand it to mean religion is something that man does to work their way to God. And so, of course, we hate that. But true and undefiled religion, James tells us, before God and man is this. There is a true form of religion. And so here the psalmist is tempted to cast it off. But in that, he also tells us what true religion is. He says it's to cleanse the heart in the very first place by repenting and being regenerate, born again, and to have your hands washed in innocence, to have a fully reformation of our lives, to be born anew. And he says, I almost cast that off. Verse 14, for all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. He was obsessed with this social and theological issue here. Obsessed. He was at the breaking point. He probably developed a tick. Why am I, a Levite, not getting nothing? And these pagan idolaters offering their children up in fire child sacrifice, sexual immorality in the, they got it all night and day obsessed with it. God, my life is hard because I'm being faithful to you, but look at the material possessions and fame of those guys. I've been raised all my life to say no to drugs, dare to say no, Crime doesn't pay, but frankly, God, it just doesn't seem like that's true. He's especially disturbed as he looks at his own life in light of it all. He's been diligent to live a holy life, and he's still beat up and spit out. Verse 15, if I said I would speak thus, 
Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. And so here is something that tells us he didn't say all of this out loud until he dealt with it before the Lord and brought gospel application to it. He kept his mouth shut. He wasn't just murmuring and complaining to everyone about it, wondering why this was so. He kept his mouth shut because he didn't want to stumble and be untrue to the rest of the people of the Lord. Maybe a good lesson for us. Maybe this is a lot of, I don't really talk about Facebook that much, but you know, here's like some real practical relevancy. Maybe we shouldn't just spew every thought we have out for the whole world to see. Asaph tells us there's wisdom in just being quiet because it can stumble people. He kept his troubles to himself. Basically knowing if I'd let my emotions reign, I might have spoken against the community of faith. And so after the final 14 verses were written, it seems he finally got down to writing the first 14 verses, which started out, truly God is good to Israel. Does that make sense? It was only after the good news of the gospel and who God is and what he's done that made him be able to speak and teach and even write a song about this perception of wicked prospering and righteous people tossed to the curb. Even though he thought and in a miss way, he took careful not to speak the evil things that he'd thought. It was Matthew Henry that said, those that wish themselves in the condition of the wicked do in effect quit the tents of God's children. And so he was saying, man, if I would have spoken out that I almost want to leave Christianity to go live in that muck, if I would have spoken that out, that is a big fearful thing for other people to hear. You're considering being an apostate? He's considering it. It was a fearful thing that he wanted to quit the tents of God's children to dwell with the wicked. But then we get to verse 16 and 17, and I'm just going to show you my notes. It's got a big gold star next to it. Okay, this is the good news. Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Now you see why Chuck Smith used this text as a church dedication text to show the importance of going into the sanctuary, into the presence of the Lord. Verse 16 tells us he pondered this riddle, but it was in vain. It remained a toll to him until he went to church went to the church. I think it was like 2014. There was like September 19th was back to church Sunday. You guys remember that? There was this video that was viral of these like four different denomination pastors getting together and one's got kind of like the liturgical stuff on and the other's kind of, you know, hipster or something, you know, and, and they do this rap about back to church. We're going back to the church. Everybody in the nation, find a location. All of the people get to a steeple. It's hilarious. YouTube it, okay? I don't think it happened after that year. No one's had one of those rallies or whatever it was because it must have epically failed, but it was very catchy. He went to church, okay? He went to the church, not the building, not the steeple. He went to the midst of people who are the redeemed, gathered in the local context, and there he got perspective. This was the decisive thing. This was the turning point in his crisis. He found what he needed. This is the answer, you guys. We are told how he kept his footing and how he got the victory. 
He came under the influence of God's word. He had true and eternal perspective wash over his life. He began to look at things in light of eternity and past the temporal. What was it about the house of God that helped Asaph? Was it the public reading of the word of God? Was it the exposition of that word, something that's happening currently at this moment? Was it something that he heard in a conversation with other believers as he shook hands and embraced and considered them as they considered him in order to stir up love and good works? Whatever it was, could have been all or one or more of these things. The important thing is that the answer came to him while he was engaged in public worship of God. It was while he was at the Lord's house that he realized that he was happy just to look at the here and the now, the glitz and the glam, and not to consider all of the facts. When he went to public worship, he began to think in terms of eternity. And you know, it's a testimony of mine, maybe it's a testimony of yours, that the house of the Lord has a wonderful way of bringing the eternal to bear upon the temporal. Out there, we get focused on everything we see and all the noises and all the sounds and all the people and all the styles and all the trends. And we come in here and we fix our eyes upon the mercy seat, the throne of God, where Christ is, ever living to pray for us. And our mind is renewed. That's what happens when we come to church. doesn't matter if we're here in this building or over at the Episcopal building or at the park. When we gather with God's people and worship Him, giving attention to the Apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread and prayers and fellowship and sharing and preaching the gospel, He lifts our eyes up. So that we would say like a psalmist in another place where David says, One thing I've desired of the Lord that will I seek, it's a song, you know it, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty, the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple, the temple of the Lord. I think you said to Doc out there, as you shook his hand, you said, hey, you know, the, I was just walking in, I overheard it. I like to say conversations I've overheard. And, you know, is it Chuck? Carl, I knew it was a C or a K, depending on the spelling. <laughs> but he said, hey, Doc. And I think he used his name. So anyways, he said, you know, the, the word says it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than what's, how's it? Than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Man, did you know we were in Psalm 73 today? <laughs> Doc, it's better for you to be out there and letting people in and kicking people out. By the way, we needed you Wednesday night whole nother story. But we need the doorkeeper, and the doorkeeper is a wonderful place. Better to be the janitor in the house of the Lord and to clean up gum off the bottom of chairs or whatever than to dwell in the tents of the wicked, to covet that. Well, one last thing before we breeze through because my time is up. Here's just what Jesus has to say on the matter. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is there and, and someone yells out of the crowd and says, Hey, master, tell my brother to be fair in the way he settles my father's estate. And Jesus says, Hey, I like this. He goes, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? <laughs> kind of a little hip lo sl sl slogan, slogan, slang, slang, hip slang. Alistair Begg said, write down your sermon for the first 10 years of your ministry or else you're going to waste everybody's time. So I don't write them down word for word. That's my error. Sorry, guys. But he says, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said, take heed and beware of covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? 
So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. That's a great explanation from Jesus of what the rest of the chapter lays out. Don't be covetous about what the wicked have. One's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. The world says he who dies with the most toys wins. That's not what I say. Don't fall into that trap, in that snare. Be rich towards God. And notice also that Jesus told the man, tonight your soul will be required of you. And that's kind of what the rest of the chapter tells us. He goes into the house of the Lord. He gets perspective on the issue. And we see that judgment is coming. And we're just going to have the worship team come up because we're going to uh, nearly read through the rest of the chapter together and, and touch on the last two verses. Surely, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. So this is what happens to those wicked that he was envying. He almost quit the faith to go join their ranks until the Lord showed him, hey, I'm going to consume them in a moment. Like a dream, verse 20, when one wakes up. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. One day, these wicked people are going to wake up. Dream's going to be over. And then now the psalmist thinks about how he's been acting. Verse 21, so my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was bitterly embittered with myself that I ever doubted God. I was so foolish, verse 22, and ignorant. I was like a beast or a behemoth before you. Why? Because beast minds only can think and look at what is to come right here in the temporary here and now. Think of your dog. <laughs> and he's like, that's what I was thinking. I'm such a fool. I almost gave up my faith for this prosperity of the wicked. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. And man, here's just a good word to, and the Lord keeps those who are his. Nevertheless, all that, wrestling and struggling and mental anguish and here I am I'm with you right now just notice the words you and just how he's focused on the Lord in the sanctuary nevertheless I'm continually with you you hold me by my right hand you will guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory man he is obsessed with the glory of the Lord right now as he's in the sanctuary of the Lord and he even realized that God is going to take us to glory with him. If we make God's glory the end that we aim at, he will make our glory with him the end that we will ever be in happily. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. This is a prayer that always comes out and I, I don't think I really realized it was Psalm 73, but for some reason, this comes to my heart when I'm in Nepal and I'm there in a room and I think a demon's in the room with me happened this year. <laughs> Thought I felt something and saw something and had to like wake Dustin up and be like, I think there's something in the room. Nothing like being 35 and being scared. And I'm just there cinched up in my mummy bag in the land of just some demonic warfare. And I'm just like, whom have I in heaven but you? And what would I even desire on earth but you? Somehow that came to my heart. And, or when I'm driving over the pass in the snow and trucks are coming and it's like, whom have I in heaven but you? And who on earth could I desire? I mean, these are like last word type things like, you know, whatever. You're just like, ah, I just want you. All I need is you, Lord. Last word type things. But here's just wonderful worship. This is such a special verse. Scarcely a verse in all the Psalms more expressive than this. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. 
You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. People leaving the Lord for fornication and and just unfaithfully abandon him. Verse 28, our last, why don't we stand together with this last verse. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. I'm just coming back to the sanctuary, coming back to the house of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. It is good for me to draw near to God. I trust the Lord God. I trust that as I'm generous with my time for the things of the kingdom of God, that you're doing more in that sacrifice of worship than you'd ever do if I were just live for myself. I trust as I'm generous with my finances and my finances are your finances that that you're going to do more with that than I could ever do if I just splurged on every whim or fancy. I trust you. And that really is the end game of, of all of our temptation and struggle, putting our trust in the Lord God. And here is just this final phrase. It's a gem. That I may declare all your works. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the the, the pinnacle of this text? God shows up, God comes through, comforts, encourages, sets us on the path again, and He is glorified as we tell the world. We tell what He's done. Lord, here we are just with a group that, that is, I know many, they're on vacation, they're visiting, and, and they could have just stayed at the cabin and just stayed just playing, and, and that would have been wonderful, but there's just something about in them that you just drew them on the Lord's day to the house of the Lord to worship, and really each of us, that's a bit of our testimony today. We see the value in coming into your presence, and many up at the campsite Uh, as well, Lord. We pray that today, all the stresses and all the anxieties that all, each one of us has them, God. We pray even in this last song that you would just focus us, give us perspective, help us to see the eternal thing in this situation and not just the temporal. We just declare, God, that all the times we've thought of forsaking the faith to to go live with that person we shouldn't live with or to, to partake in that sensual act or to, um, to backslide, to wander, to, to go live in, in prosperity. Lord, that we just see how you've kept us and, and here we are right now. It's, just, it's a testimony of your work in us. And so Lord, we worship you with Asaph thousands of years later. Shouting out, who in heaven do we have but you? And what on earth could we desire? We sing of your praise here today. Let's sing and worship together this last song.